Thank you for listening to the Following Films podcast. Today I'm joined by composer Andrew Gordon McPherson. I had him on the show to talk about his work on the film Kids vs. Aliens, which is currently in theaters and available on VOD. If you're somebody who enjoyed the Amblin films of the 80s and something like the Sam Raimi films of that same time period, like Evil Dead Part 2, if that particular Venn diagram happens to land somewhere in what your tastes may be, I think that Kids vs. Aliens might be the perfect film for you. I had a great time with this film and had a really good time chatting with Andrew about it. So hope you enjoy the show and definitely check out the film. First thing I was struck by watching this film. Um, Hold on, before got, we get into that, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I want to I want to give you uh, some props because I listened to your episode with uh, Leslie Iwerks, and I am oh. a gigantic mark for Ub Iwerks because my whole life, you know, has been dedicated to making movies, and I love cartoons. I thought I was going to go to animation school for a long time, uh, and I've only fig- I only learned about who Ub Iwerks was in the last like two years or something. Same here. And it's because of her and her like doing this incredible work of like preserving her sort of her family's legacy. And as far as I'm concerned, they're like Hollywood royalty. And so much of what we love came from Ub Iwerks and like, you know, he created Mickey Mouse. He, he's basically single-handedly, made uh steamboat willie and 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 did the score for it live and he made the animation camera that they did the the birds animation with like all this stuff and so um yeah i I was super stoked you did an episode with her so thank you for that feel free to leave that in because (laughs) as cross promotion for the rest of your podcast because if you don't know who i'm talking about if you don't know who ub iwerks is and his granddaughter Leslie Iwerks, you gotta you gotta do some research because they're similar it's figures. A fascinating story. Um, there's the the great series that they that she did documentary series for Disney Plus, which is great to watch. The book that she put out is incredible. Um, if yeah. you've seen the documentary and haven't read the book yet, go out and check that out. And that story, it's really kind of like what you're saying. It's the foundation of really cinema as we know it today. You don't have, with the camera techniques that they were inventing for those shorts, you don't end up with stop motion animation. You don't end up with all these other things that came afterwards. And it's really just the stuff that made me fall in love with cinema. That's all can be traced back to that innovative period, which is pretty incredible. Amazing. Yeah. But thank you for taking the time to do this. And thank you for listening to other episodes, man. I really appreciate it because I was immediately struck with how many hats you got to wear. In this particular, um, in this score, because if you think in the first 15 minutes of this movie, you have the opening on the boat where you have this, um, it has strings in it, but it also has this kind of odd 70s vibe to it to some degree, which I really appreciated. thought it was kind of this totally different score. And then you go into something that almost sounds, I'm not a musician by any sense. So please apologize for my lack of uh education and i might fumble through this but it almost sounds like a nintendo core when you have these kids that are filming the movie and then it goes (laughs) into a slightly more traditional um thriller synth score and it's just you're moving through all these different styles throughout it is that something that was discussed when you were initially taking on this project or something you found along the way um i mean it's funny you brought up nintendo core because before 
they shot a frame of footage. Jason and I were talking about music and he sent me a email with like 30 links of just random music that he was kind of into. And he thought like there might be something in it for the movie. And about a third of them, I think were pieces of music from PlayStation games, like the PlayStation <laughs> one games, really yeah. obscure ones too. Uh, games I'd never like never played or even heard of. Um, and there was some really crazy stuff in there that, you know, uh, I, I guess went into the, the recipe a little bit, but, um, Jason and I have done a, I, I, I score a TV show for him called dark side of the ring. And I've done 30 episodes of that. That show has no right to be as good as it is, by the way. It's incredible. I, I, I would never have thought, and, and that's my own ignorance, but I never thought that something about wrestling could have that kind of depth and be such a powerful story. Cause it's, it's really, if anybody hasn't seen some it, of them are so powerful. I mean, regardless Jesus of my involvement of them, I, I, you know, and this is going to sound totally hyperbolic, but I feel, I truly feel this way, which is that, you know, pretty close to a third of those episodes are as good as almost any documentary on any subject and, and actually have like, they're really powerful and actually say something really profound and, you know, do some digging and also like mend fences in the world and yeah. like, so it's, you know, I'm really like, I'm really lucky to have been a part of that. Um, but going back to your first question, you know, Jason and I work really closely on that. And one of the sort of part of our marching, my marching orders on the music of that show is we wanted to make every episode have some cohesion across the series, but also each one have its kind of own genre of cinema. And with that comes its own genre of music. And so there's an episode in that that sounds like 90s arcade music. And there's another one that sounds like Bernard Herrmann, Twilight Zone. And there's another one that sounds like, you know, Tangerine Dream, 80s kind of Michael Mann. And and all of that has kind of become my style in a way of like, you know, from what I love, love first watching movies of, you know, the scores of Danny Elfman, especially to like becoming an electronic music nerd and really getting into Tangerine Dream and, and John Carpenter scores to the arcade music. But yeah, for kids versus aliens, that's that all of that informs Jason's sensibilities and then informs mine. And, and with this movie, uh, you know, it's, it is a multi-genre movie and that it's sci-fi, but it's horror and it's, it's kids and it's a teen film, but it's also, you know, um, and, and it's also like pretty like, it's kind of a ride where like you mentioned the scene on the fishing boat at the beginning, like Jason wanted to tap into this kind of idea of folklore and fantasy. And so that it kind of starts on that note. And then we go into a sort of a more, pop you have you have kids and what their musical world sounds like which is probably what the more like nintendo sounding music that you reference and then there's teens which is more kind of pop and and shine like bright kind of synthesizer stuff and like uh and you know and then it eventually the aliens arrive and it's sort of a it's it's just like running until the end of the movie and and action and and that just brings together kind of the elements we've already heard with also kind of classic you know film and horror film music. Well, and I, I'm glad that you mentioned Tangerine Dream because they are that was 
I think probably the Miracle Mile soundtrack was the first soundtrack album I ever bought. And it was Tangerine Dream. And I just kind of went down this rabbit hole with that band. And you mentioned that kind of like for lack of a better word, that kind of like ethereal synth stuff that he would have. And this kind of like, or even something like the soundtrack for Risky Business, where it has that sort of, it's this, it's not like the John Carpenter synth stuff that you hear a lot of now. It's it's yeah. this, it gives more space and more atmosphere, or a different kind of atmosphere to it. And I found it really interesting because the way that you're playing it, it's not the way that I would necessarily think about it because you're playing this type of music that has an intensity to it in a essentially just like a meet cute between two kids and it just and it gives it this different level and it's just such an interesting um way to not make comment on but to support the scene in a way that you wouldn't necessarily think this is how you would do it yeah and that i mean the the sort of meet cute that you're talking that that's a i mean that's an example of like a for a composer one of the you know, you think that the the big action cue might be the most difficult one, but like when you look at a scene like that, where it's like, this is right at the beginning of the movie, so it's not a no, you know, hopefully not a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it. But I honestly think this movie's spoiler proof. I think yeah. I could tell you every beat of this movie, and I don't want to do that, but I think this movie, it it's it's the performances, it's how goddamn fun these kids are to hang out with it's the character design it's everything in this that makes this so much fun that i think you can't really describe it in that sense and ruin it it's not something that's it's not like an m night Shyamalan movie it's not something that's hanging on this one thread and if you pull it it's gonna fall no and there's no uh obscure marvel character that they reveal (laughs) in the last 10 minutes or something exactly no but it in like from a composing standpoint that's a that's a scene where uh we've just met all the main characters they're kind of playing in their clubhouse uh one of them gets hit with a beer bottle they're under attack by uh by sort of older bratty older kids um there's a there's the older sister who's trying to kind of like save face with them in a weird way but also stand up for the younger kids and then there's kind of a little spark of attraction between two of them so there's these kids there's little kids who are like you know, uh, feeling like they're getting bullied while there's like, a like this attraction in the middle. And then there's the older kids who are kind of like making fun. Of, so there's, it's very complex emotionally where we're supposed to be sitting yeah. there. And, and, you know, I think the first time I tried to score that scene, you know, Jason, uh, so the first movie I ever saw was Ghostbusters and i think jason it might be one of jason's first ones too and we looked at that score and and with that score elmer bernstein because it's it's so routed in comedy as well as mm-hmm. horror there's a lot of beats that are it's like it's almost like a looney tunes cartoon of where like like you play every the the music like like plays every beat and it's very call and response and it and and it, it's it's like very much a comedic approach to it. And I think I tried to take that and like take a Elmer Bernstein type approach with that. And it's like, ah, this is not, this is not really working. Like it just felt like, it's felt like we were trying to make something in the world of a Looney Tunes cartoon or like a, like a, like a kid's show. And it was yeah. like, no, we, we need to approach this like kids versus aliens. And, and that's when, you know, the sort of more tangerine dream approach or something closer to what we did on dark side came up where, you know, there are, it, it tries to, 
it tries to surf those emotions the best it can, but also keep up some of the intensity. So, no, and I think that's that's really smart. It's something that actually supports the emotion of the scene um, without passing judgment on it. Because I think that if you have something that falls into the more of that comedic side, then it's like you're playing that for a laugh at that point. And as absurd as the scene is, on in so many ways. To those kids, it's deadly serious. You know, this is yeah. this girl is essentially we're watching her come of age in, in this exact moment. You're watching her grow up in this 30 second piece. So I think that it is something that should be carried with. A yeah, little like a, like from an acting and from a just from a character point, like in that one scene, you see a like a girl in dressed in like her wrestling fatigues <laughs> instantly be like, I've made a huge mistake and like regret like she goes from pure kind of joy and commitment in this, you know, game she's playing with her little brothers to, to, you know, I'm a big girl now for lack of a more articulate way to say that, but like, and like wanting, wanting to wishing kind of, she had the, the coolness of these kids, these, you know, older kids and, and the edge of these other kids and how embarrassing and how it suddenly is to, to be this thing. And it, and that's, you know, that's what sets her off down the path. She goes for the rest of the movie. And so then when you're coming up with this idea, the sort of the themes for the film, are you waiting until the film's been shot? Are you coming in at the script phase or when are you starting to put together? um, When does your collaboration with the director begin? Yeah, so like Jason and I, uh, you know, we've worked a lot together over the last few years, and he sent me the script. I didn't really know how close they were to making it. It was like I was finishing up Dark Side of the Ring season three, and I got this script. Of, oh, cool! I'm making a script. Like, uh, it's great to read a new Jason Eisner, John Davies feature film because obviously a huge fan of Hobo with a Shotgun. Yeah, and uh, I read it and I loved it, and I like think I wrote like ten little demos of, of ideas I had while reading it of like ways it could go and like, or like how the the scene would sort of like arrive in my brain as I was reading it, and I sent those to Jason, and uh, probably three or four of them ended up being the basis of stuff that went in the movie. Um, but he played a lot of it on set, like the, in the party scene, there's music that I made that he played that they dance kind of to while they filmed it. And, did, uh, did you write the the stuff that the kid does the acoustic stuff also? Is that under no, your, no, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, you know, there's one piece, the first piece that happens in the party, uh, and the p- piece that Caleb plays on guitar. Yeah. I didn't, those are the only musical moments that I didn't, uh, I didn't contribute to in the movie, well, but uh, I, I was, I, I didn't want to, I wanted to either pay a compliment or it, it, without it sounding, it's, that's the kind of music that I wrote in high school. That yeah. sounds so appropriate that it, the way that it's structured. And I, it's so honest that it's like looking at old trapper keepers filled with bad poetry, kind of embarrassing that, yeah. you would, and that, in that mindset at that time. And there was just such an authenticity to it that you don't want to say compliment somebody on nailing that particular thing because it could come across as an insult if they're actually pouring their heart into it. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Jason, uh, I think I heard Jason when he was like working with Caleb who plays Billy, he, he asked him to watch a show called fuck boy Island. And just, and he was like, 
just trying to try and channel one of these dudes. <laughs> and and I I don't know I don't know if that song came out of that direction, but I wouldn't be surprised if it did. That's perfect. I mean, I, that right there, if that's the direction and what you ended up with in the end, that nailed it. Like that is exactly what it should have been. Yeah. Um, then what, what, when you're approaching this kind of material, this um, sort of genre, what you mentioned that the action beats, which the last quarter of this movie, like, I guess like the last third, honestly, it's once it really goes off the rails it doesn't come back it just Mm -hmm. goes and the score is a big part of that so you said that that part is a little bit easier to find the rhythms in that or just to find what you should be doing is that just scoring to action is just uh something that's simpler because the emotion is more obvious yeah i mean finding the distinction of like what the i mean you know, I broadly call them action cues or whatever, but um, you know, there's there's like a, there is like a something of an art, I guess, to like figuring out the distinction between what's a what's a chasing cue and what's a fleeing cue. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. What's yeah. a uh, and what's or what's a rallying cue and like what's a you know, and so it, there is like finding finding the sort of like the right track to get on for each part of the scene. But unlike the scene where we're talking about, there's all these, it's people talking in a room and they're all in these different, very different emotional places that you've got to kind of like hold them all at the same time. It's usually like when you get on the track of one of those things, you're in, you're squarely in that, that like emotional territory um, you know, it has its own challenges too, because it's like usually like days when I'm working on action cues, I th- probably hear like 10 times as many snare drums as I uh, hear on days where I'm like writing like soft piano music, which is like fatiguing in its own way, I guess. Um, and, you know, so like that, you know, that's a, it's its own challenge of like, you know, keeping the tension up, keeping the terror up, keeping the action and the power up and like not, not, not exhausting people sonically and having, you know, enough sort of peaks and valleys and surprise and, and uh, all, all that to, to, you know, really people keep in, keep people interested. This is a movie that doesn't feel like you talk about keeping people interested in my, that there's not, there's no fat on this thing. This is a lean, lean movie where it feels like every, I I don't know how you could pull anything out because it's just, it feels incredibly tight and it happens so quickly. This I've watched it twice. Um, Just, I was able to watch it once as an audience member and then watch it to kind of go back and think about the, uh, from the point of view of the score and look at it that way. And it's something that you've done something really impressive here where I don't notice the score which I think that if to have a movie that's this tight, if you had any themes that were overstaying their welcome, you could really um, screw with the momentum of this film, which I think is one of the keys to why this works so well. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's, I got to say, it's like a testament to the, like sort of to take a term from corporate America synergy of Jason and I, 
But for real, it's, it's like Jason and I went to film school together a long time ago. Today's episode of the Following Films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. I'm joined today by my son, Jacob. Jacob, say hello to the people. Oh, there you go. You're already on it. So, Jacob, when you go to Bookman's, what is it that you like to look at? What do you like to get? To get toys uh, and movies and, and the coffee news. You like to look at the movies and you like to get the coffee news, the newspaper they have out front? That's yes. great. So, last time we went into Bookman's, I picked up a movie. Um, what movie did I get, Jacob? A stick from New York, but that's the name as it hurts of the, uh, ex, uh, as the cover. Sorry, sorry, I want So, no, no, you're okay. Would you talk a little bit about what you see on the cover of Escape from New York on this Blu-ray that I got? So, based on this cover, you see grass shattered and also the Statue of Liberty's face fell apart because... In this movie, Escape from New York, is the introduction is a man trying to save the president's daughter, and New York turns into a prison in this movie. And there's the hero, as you can see, very strong, in fact. Oh, yeah. Now, this is one of my favorite movies. I love this movie. Now, you're too young to watch it because you're only six years old, but do you think in a couple years from now, when you get a little bit older, you'll want to check out Escape from New York? Yeah. Okay, what's a movie that you've seen that we picked up at Bookman's that you like? Come here, talk so that people can hear you. A Little Shop of Horrors? Little Shop of Horrors, that's a great movie. So, when you're going to Bookman's, you can get movies, DVDs, Blu-rays, 4K, Laserdisc, VHS. You can also get comic books, books, newspapers, magazines, home furnishings. Uh, You can get tons of stuff there. Because remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. Hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Nova Scotia in the early 2000s and then I moved to Toronto and we hadn't worked together we hadn't been that closely in touch but about uh, I don't know six or seven years ago now he uh, he was like I'm coming to Toronto I'm going to be editing this film I'm looking for an assistant and I was actually working as a picture editor at the time in a post house and I was like hey man uh, great to hear from you I'm you know I'm working in a post house here I know lots of assistant editors tell me what the project is you know I can find somebody to that'll fit the bill and he's like it's uh it's goon two last of the enforcers uh director Jay Baruchel it's his first feature um and I was like shit I want to do that can I come and do it and he's like yeah sure so I quit my job at the post house and went and did this movie with him and it was a kind of a long process of because they shot a lot for that film. And so Jason and I and Jay Baruchel basically lived together for 12 hours a day uh, in Jay's basement. And, and that wasn't just making the film. It was, you know, we would take all of our, you know, lunch breaks and all kinds of breaks together. And we were watch stuff in between and, and our tastes really started kind of intermingling and, and you know, I was I was involved with music for a long time as well, and I had been in the music industry for a while and was kind of taking a break and coming back to to making films and and so I and just sort of naturally ended up kind of making some stuff for for Jason and for stuff he was he was pitching and little sizzle, sizzle reels and one of those was Dark Side of the Ring and it went from there. But um, all of that to say is like in the 
you know, to get back to your original question is like, like Jason and I have made a lot of sequences together and made a lot of sequences from a picture editing standpoint and from a pic- picture meets sound and yeah. music point of view. And so I kind of know what he likes and he, I think that we, I can kind of anticipate how he's going to play it. And, and uh, you know, even with dark side of the ring, there's a lot of stuff that I've scored for him where I get a cut and there's no, uh, it's just interview footage and black cards, title cards where the reenactment footage is going to be like this guy punches this guy something. Yeah. And so like, I just got to the point of like anticipating how I think he's going to shoot it and trying to, to like bolster what I think he's going to do in the camera with, with music. And then it kind of land, like, it's kind of like, like this audio visual, like uh trapeze, you know, like yeah, kind of catch each other in midair. And, and so, so yeah, it's just, I just try and lock into what he's doing with the picture and, and it works most of the time. That's, I couldn't imagine then trapeze such a perfect way to describe that, except you're blindfolded. You're just jumping off the platform, not knowing if you're going to connect in the middle or if you're just going to completely run into each other and knock each other off that. That's a, a, a leap of faith to really, to work like that. Do you enjoy working that way? Or is that something that, um, is just built on that long-standing relationship. They're able to do that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's. Uh, I've I've definitely worked on other projects where I've like made, like read a script or read a brief or something and made music to what I think it is, and it's just like, no, no, this is not what it's gonna, <laughs> and just have to start from scratch or whatever, which is totally fine because I, you know, and I've I've learned through working editing that the movie has all these different lives or lives of between like what it is on the page, what it is when they shoot it on the day, what it is when it's assembled, what it is when it's like got all the moving pieces together, what it's like when all the people have weighed in with their notes, it changes drastic can change very drastically through all those times. So, but, um, but yeah, it's, it, that's that's something mainly that comes from me and Jason's relationship, and and I wouldn't recommend it in most cases. Most I think that the the normal way of doing things, of, which is wait until the picture is locked and then have a detailed conversation about what everyone thinks they're doing or want to do and what is appropriate, and 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 then you know proceed from there. But uh, you know, it's not always. Not not always what can take place, and you know, but we're we're lucky that we've had a lot of kicks of the can together and and a bit of success. So, what are your um, what are your thoughts? Because I hear different things from different composers of working with temp scores, because it can be um, where you'll have the music from another film or even just an artist that's put in place to hold it, and then there's the instruction can be just to imitate something along those lines that just create that, make that in your own way. Um, I've heard some composers say they really enjoy working that way and others that find it insulting that they're not finding the path themselves, that it's akin to a line reading. What do you think about that? Yeah. Uh, well, again, my background being from as, uh, or having worked as a picture editor for a long time, uh, you know, I mean, before there was sync dialogue, there was music in, in, in picture, right. It's like music, music and editing, like 
that's the beginning of motion pictures, right? Um, what I mean, whether it was a guy playing a piano in the theater along with an edit, or yeah, you know, but when you're editing, th- there's so much that you can get out of putting it against a piece of music, and there's stuff that doesn't work that you can make work with music, and 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 also when you're when you're working as a picture editor, you know, a lot of like producer types think that oh, I know what a rough cut looks like. It doesn't need to have all the bells and whistles, but like, it's kind of bullshit. Like you need to kind of be putting up something that could go in a theater on TV every time. And so as a, from an editing standpoint, like there's, there's like no way, there's no way that you can't, or there's no way that you can really do the job in what motion pictures look and sound like in our modern day without editing it to picture. Right. So I understand that. I also understand, like you said, at the beginning of this, not everybody has a musical vocabulary. Yeah. Like people. And if you're a storyteller, you understand sort of, an, you can understand sort of like uh, intrinsically that this piece of music is chasing versus fleeing. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't know how to articulate that in a musical sense. Like you wouldn't know what kind of harmony you need to get to. You wouldn't know what kind of rhythm rhythm or polyrhythm you w- would want. You know, that's, that stuff's kind of all up to the composer, I guess. But, you know, temp music is a way that you could kind of get to that spot. Um, so I've been grateful for temp music in some places where directors need it to, as a communication tool. And when I have a spotting session, I mean, there's always temp music and everything that before I start uh, pretty much. And when we, we have our spotting session, which is just like a, the first meeting where the composer and the director or the composer and the sound team watches with mm-hmm. the director, and you, you pause play and you talk about what's there and what needs to go there and what's missing. And my first, my questions always, my first question is like, do you like the temp? Like how close is the temp to what you're feeling? Like what you because if and if they're like I love the temp, um, you know, and and sometimes that's like a we're we're trying to license a, this song, but but yeah. if it's like a piece of score, say, um, you know, I'll be like, okay, if you if you love the temp, like I can kind of like, you know, I can go off this, like whether there's there's data to be scraped from there, which is like tempo information, usually uh, sort of vaguely what the sort of ensemble is that, mm-hmm. you know, is it orchestral? Is it synthy? Is it trap? Is it whatever? So there's like data to be kind of scraped to start from there to like get it to where, but like with a composer, there's absolutely always somewhere that you can inject more storytelling, whether there's, whether it's bringing in character themes again or reinterpreting character themes or, uh, or just making space for the right piece of dialogue or whatever. So I don't know. I, I think, and there's movies where I've scored and edited them and I've tried to make a bunch of music first and edit with it. And it doesn't work because again, in editing you, the movie becomes something new again, like, yeah. and you're, you're now, like it works sometimes like with me and Jason, it kind of has worked a few times where I read a script and I write some music and 
something that happens with me and Jason a lot of times is I read a script and write a piece of music for one scene and he puts it in a different scene and something that I wasn't intending and it works 10 times better or it inspires him for how he's trying to do something in another. So yeah, I, I don't think it always works to like go composer first. And so, uh, you know, I understand why it's there. Sometimes it's really helpful as a communication tool. Sometimes it really sucks. Like it's, it sucks to be told like something original you did isn't as good as like something generic, but, but I'm, you know, I'm here to serve the film and I'm here to serve the vision and like, let's, okay, let's, let's go from that idea and make it the best thing for this, this scene we can. So. No, that makes perfect sense. And that's actually really helpful getting my head around that idea that it could be something as simple as the rhythm is what they were looking for. It could be something that there's because of the tone of the piece that gives a feeling and the rhythm isn't as important to it, but it's just something in that atmosphere that it created with that, that makes that's what they're going for. It could be bombast, which is the kind of that uplifting thing that you're going for. And that was their way of getting to that. And that's how I would have to communicate that. Cause if you're talking about the way to actually describe that, I would, I would have been a composer and I would have had a completely different uh, background than I do have now. And I wouldn't be able to talk in that way, but I think that's, that makes a lot of sense. So, And, and I don't think it's totally codified even among composers and like really established composers and directors in a, in a strong way. Like I've been trying to create that language a little bit to my, myself, like, when I talk about fleeing versus chase, like yeah. I've been really trying to hammer down on like, what, what are the storytelling verbs that actually can make sense to me in a musical context that I can kind of like arm my directors with when we yeah. talk about these things. Um, because, because really having like super, super specific conversations about a, this type of, like we're going to work in the Dorian mode in a seven, eight times tick signature. And like, like it's, you know, I, I think like it's not storytelling language. This is, this is like, like I have those shorthands for like, I think that like, Oh, this character is kind of cool. Uh, but it's kind of in a horror context. So like maybe a Dorian mode in a seven, eight, context is a that's like going going to my toolbox that's the first tool those are the first tools i will go to in a, in a composer sense yeah but but probably like possibly not and and uh and you know the director doesn't need to know that doesn't need to, to like know or know how to and and it's like the the comparison you made about a line reading. It's like, you know, don't don't tell me what tools to use. It also like, yeah, tell me true. what you want to get to. And 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 sometimes the right thing to go to is like, I have one patch on the keyboard that was perfect, and I hold held down one note, and seventy five percent of what we wanted came from from just having the right timbre, you know. That makes sense. So if you're doing something in seven eighths, is that where it's going to be a count of three and then a count of four, or is it a count of four, then a count of three at the it end of it? It could be either or. And would, how would you, would is resolve? Cause both those were used to like 
uh, both of those. You account of three, you, you're used to that. You're account of four. That's every pop song is written in that. So when you're combining those things, are they both familiar, but the combination of them makes it a little bit uneasy? Is that kind of how that works? I mean, it's that for pretty much anything for, for an horror, idiot like me. So yeah, no, anything that's like anything that's horror or like psychological uh, thriller or, you know, going with sort of odd time signatures and by odd, I just mean kind of anything that's not four, four or three, four. Yeah. It's kind of a classic thing. Like, like, uh, like the, uh, uh, I'm drawing a blank here. Like Mike Oldfield, um, the exorcist mm-hmm. theme yeah. is an odd time signature. There's a tubular there's a bells. Of, that one. Yeah. There's a lot of like, carpenter themes that are kind of odd time signatures um and it um you know uh but like the way that i would codify that when talking to my director is like it's got a it's like a track that needs to limp or it needs to have a like or it needs to have like a uh it it just it creates this like um it's the musical equivalent of like a silhouette or something it's like where where you think you know where the where you are but you you're you're always kind of like getting lost in this in this uh for the average kind of listener anyway oh no no i i would be below average in that it's just the well it's what you take away from it and if you're thinking about the time signature of the music in the movie while you're watching it you're either a composer or the film is way off in what it should be doing at that yeah time. no exactly like you you want these are all like hopefully subtle techniques of like you understand that you it's sticking to picture and you're uneasy and and, and it's working together with you know the the whatever hue of green gel the the cinematographer and the gaffer have chosen you know yeah it's like finding the right balance when you're when you used to set up your stereo and it's just you had to do it not it's there wasn't a standard way you had to do it for whatever that room was and it's just you had to like play with everything with the balancing of that and so you have the lighting of it the performance of it the editing of it the sound of this beyond the score the sound design beyond that where you just have what is what's the Foley like in this? What is the, and all those elements coming together is that, and how you play those together is just what really makes what do, the piece. Yeah, so what do you, and what are you focusing on? What's important, you know, and what, what are, what's the clearest thing that you're communicating, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, there's something in the 90 minute um, format, which I think doesn't do every film its best version where there's plenty of films that could be an hour long and that's it. And there's certain films you see that are shorts, you go to festivals, you see something that's five minutes and it's just a perfect punchline. It doesn't need to be explored for one frame longer. It is just so succinct. And then they inevitably it does well and they try to expand it and it starts to fall apart because it's something that didn't need to grow to that. And unfortunately it doesn't always feel like it's the story that's dictating. And yeah, I think this is one of those perfect examples of something that is just, it's so tight. And so, I, I want more with this particular world, but not from this particular film. I think this is just a really well executed film. So, and sorry, going off on a tangent here, but yeah, th- thank you very much. And uh, congratulations. You got a good one here, man. Thank you so much. It's 
was a blast to work on and hopefully we get to do many, many more. You will. Yeah. I have no doubt in my mind. There's a, there's a need for films like this. And uh, yeah, this is something there's a, it's rare for me to find stuff that I don't want to be the one that hands this to my 12 year old, but I absolutely (laughs) want to leave this on the shelf and have my 12 year old pick this up and watch this. Cause this is the movie that I needed when I was 12 years old, like this, this will be a thing that can fall in line with, you know, I was 12 years old when I discovered evil dead Two. this time of type of filmmaking. Is that like just completely out there, but just, I know it'll speak to him and I'm looking forward to him seeing this. Yeah. Well, man, we're just trying to get all the kids to sneak into the theaters this weekend. (laughs) If we can. (laughs) Time enough to figure you out. Time enough to write this down. Wish me luck. Give me hope.
voice crack.